Um, on Friday, Kevin had actually texted me and says he wasn't feeling so well. And I didn't want to pry. I didn't want to volunteer for anything quite yet. That was super short notice. Um, and so I checked on him yesterday. He said he felt like roadkill. And so I sent, kind of casted the line, you hope doesn't get a hit. I was like, do you need me to preach? You know, and just kind of sat there looking at the text thread and you get the ellipses. And he's like, that would be great. <laughs> and so I would love to say it was like this moment where I felt the call of the Lord and just like, here am I, send me. It was not that. Um, <laughs> it was not that. So um, I started thinking, though, what text could I teach today? Um, so I really, let me back up. I have taught before, for those of you who are um, not new with us, if you are new with us, um, I do. maybe I said that wrong. Anyway, um, so I started looking through some old sermons, right? And just like, what, what can I pull from? What, what's an outline we can, we can work off of that will be as relevant for today as it was when I first preached it? And I will just say, I do believe that all of the Bible is relative all of the time. So if you're you know, looking for something to critique me on, please don't pick that. Um, but after looking at some old sermons, I felt that Luke chapter 7 uh, was the text that was to be taught. And so I'm using the framework that I actually preached um, from a sermon given May 15th, 2022, so almost a year ago to the date. Um, and so if some of this sounds familiar. Um, it's not deja vu. This is not some weird um, paranormal universe thing um, or stranger things, whatever it is. It just means you were paying attention in church, which is very good of you. Um, so I said that I think this sermon and this text is as applicable today as it was a year ago. And I will say, I think it will be applicable a year from now. And the reason for that is because this text, I think, brings us to the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a Christian. And that is the white-hot worship in the heart of the worshiper to the God of the Bible, which is seen clearly and completely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think this text evokes that. It gets it at the genesis of worship, if you will. And that's seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think this text shows us how that happens and what it looks like when it happens in a very beautiful way. Um, so with that, if you will turn to Luke 7, 36 through 50. But first, um, let me just pray to, to kick this thing off. Lord, I ask that first um, you would still my anxious heart. Lord, I must confess that in my flesh, I love the praise of people. I love for people to look at me and think highly of me. And Lord, would every, just every fragment of that kind of thinking, would you uh, remove it from the threshing room floor that is my soul right now? Lord, I pray that this morning, you and your word and your gospel and your son would be lifted high. And that when you are lifted up, all people might be drawn to you. All people might come to worship you. The Jews and Gentiles alike would say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Lord, I pray that that would be the takeaway today. That you are worthy of our worship. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, Luke chapter 7, 36-50 says this. I think this is the ESV. <laughs> Um, it says this, one of the Pharisees asked him, and that's uh, asking Jesus there, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, 
She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii uh, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, yet you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from uh, the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment or perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to him, uh, he said to her, excuse me, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the sermon title for this morning's message, if you're taking notes, I don't know if it's on the screen. You got it up there. Well done, Tristan. Um, is the equation for worship. The equation for worship. I think this text shows us three components, or you could say three prerequisites that are required for worship to take place. Um, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. They are, um, and will serve as the three points for this morning's message. The first uh, prerequisite for worship is that we must have a biblically accurate self-awareness. I know it's kind of a mouthful. If you want to just put self-awareness, you can put it in there. But I want to be very clear that that self-awareness must align with what the Bible says is true of us. Second, we need a biblically accurate God-awareness. And I'm kind of making that phrase up, but I think we have to be aware and understand who God is as the Bible portrays Him to us, right? And lastly, we have to deal in the currency of the kingdom. The currency of the kingdom, and that is as Jesus reveals it, namely in the Gospels. He's going to reveal it here in Luke chapter 7 specifically, though. So those are our kind of three working points. You could also frame these as three questions, though. And you could ask these three questions of ourselves from this text. The first question is, who am I? Who am I? The second question, real simple, who is Jesus? And the last question would be, what happens when the answers to the first two questions come together in a coherent way that aligns with the biblical narrative? Is that making any sense at all? No, it's kind of heady, that last part. You could say, what happens when who I really am according to the Scriptures, and again, I'm going off the assumption that the Scriptures are true, Okay, and if you don't align with that, that's okay. We welcome that here, but that's another sermon for another day. But what happens when who I really am according to the Scriptures collides with who Jesus is according to the Scriptures? What is on the other side of that equation? Right? When you sum those two things, what's on the other side of the equal sign? So back to Luke chapter 7 and the story that Luke lays out for us. Um, there are only three casting roles in this text. The first, of course, is Jesus. And then we have this Pharisee who is, uh, we're called, as, his, his name is Simon. And then we're said that there's this, we're told there's this woman whose name we don't know. Um, we only have two descriptions of her. The one is that she is a woman of the city and she's called a sinner. Okay, so you have Simon and you have this sinner. And then you have Jesus in the middle. 
And while this is an actual account that actually took place, right? this is not made up, this is not just a parable, we have to see that the two characters in the story outside of Jesus present us with two types in the text. They are two polar opposite ways of seeing both themselves and seeing Jesus. And these two characters are juxtaposed against one another in the text, which forces us, the reader, to ask ourselves which of these two characters we most identify with. Do we see ourselves in the place of Simon the Pharisee, or will we see ourselves in the place of this unnamed sinner? And so I simply want to kind of uh, play this whole thing back in slow motion, frame by frame, and then on the back end, we'll kind of look through these points one by one through the lens of each of these characters. So before we dive in, let me set up a little bit of context. Um, So starting in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus starts endorsing the ministry of his cousin John the Baptist, and he starts alluding to his own identity as the Messiah and the identity of John the Baptist as the forerunner to the Messiah who the Scriptures foretold of long ago. And then Jesus kind of wraps this little teaching up by rebuking his audience for receiving neither of them. Right? They don't receive Jesus as the Messiah. They don't receive John the prophet. It is safe to say Jesus was not seeker-sensitive. Okay, he's not about obtaining a crowd. Anytime actually Jesus starts to get kind of popular, he says something really hard like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) He just does. It's awesome. Um, And so it was common in those days when a rabbi was traveling uh, from town to town like Jesus and he would get to a town and he starts teaching in the temple. After that teaching, it was common that a religious leader of the day, a Pharisee, as we have it here, would invite Jesus back to their place and they would kind of have lunch um, at their home. And this was actually an event that was open to the public, okay? One second. <clears throat> that was supposed to be in the closed captioning. Y'all ever like watch closed captioning on your TVs? And things are in brackets, it's like eerie music playing. That was supposed to be in the closed captioning, I wasn't supposed to say that. But the homes of the Pharisees in those days were shaped like this hollow box. And so you'd have this square home, and in the middle you'd have this uh, courtyard, right? And they would dine in the courtyard. There was probably like a shabby sheep table, and it was really nice and and, and really nice mooding and stuff like that. But you'd have these, these religious elites in the middle of the table with the traveling rabbi, Jesus here in the story. And you'd have these lay people come and kind of... Um, fill out the outside of this courtyard. They kind of serve as flies on the wall to this intellectual elitist discussion that's taking place around the table. So it was entertainment before the dawn of Netflix and social media. And so that's the scene we're walking into here in Luke chapter 7, verse 37. And everything's kind of going status quo until verse 37, when this person enters the scene who would never normally have been allowed in, not even to the public event that was taking place in the day. And that person, of course, is this sinful woman. But rather than edit her out of the story or ignore her altogether, as probably everybody else was trying to do, Luke actually singles this woman out. And he does it with a second word in verse 37. Look with me again at Luke chapter 7, verse 37. Luke says, behold. Okay, behold there in the Greek is an imperative, which means it's a command. Luke is actually commanding the reader to look at this woman. It's as if, while Luke is painting this picture for us, he's setting up this scene, he specifically picks out this woman from the crowd and he says, watch her, pay attention to her, notice her, even though everything in you wants to look away from her because of who she is and what she has done, I want you to notice her and even so to look at her. And so in this woman comes, she is hugging the outside of the courtyard wall 
alabaster jar in hand. It's an expensive perfume, probably the most valuable thing this woman owned, especially given her profession. And while she makes her way towards Jesus, who is positioned around this table with all of the religious elites, this countercultural, sinner-loving rabbi continues to talk at the table with his company. Now, in those days, the way they would eat is they would kind of post up on their left arm and it would leave their right arm open to eat. So I won't lay down for you, but you kind of lay down, your left arm's like hiking your body up a little bit, right? And your right arm, you're, you're eating food. Your feet then were positioned kind of back and away from the table. So you were kind of at a 45 degree angle to the table. Does this make sense? Okay, thank you. <laughs> because in those days, right, I mean, feet are already kind of gross, like, they're just, I mean, it's fine if you go barefoot, whatever. I don't want to get into that. But they're typically a, a not clean part of the body. But this was before like running water, Tide Pods, high efficiency washers. And so feet then were even dirtier than they are today. And they would have been the last thing you wanted to be close to the things you were eating. Right? Can you relate? And so yet, um, even so, that is precisely where this woman aims her worship of Jesus. Now scholars think this woman probably intended to anoint Jesus' head but it simply wasn't available to her. And so rather than interrupt what was going on or wait for a better opportunity that may have never come, she chose to do all that she could with all that she had in the time that she had to do it. And she offered the very best she had to give to the most undignified part of Jesus. So she kneels low at Jesus' feet, starts wiping her, her feet with her tears, and then she cleanses them and washes his feet off with her hair, which meant her hair would have been let down it wasn't put up, it wasn't hidden, which in those days was an extremely vulnerable position and an extremely shameful one for a woman in that culture. Even today, if you look in the Middle, of the, the Middle East, all of the women, you don't see their hair. It's, it's tied up, it's wrapped up, it is not to be seen. And as she dries Jesus' feet, she begins to kiss them in adoration. And finally, for the grand finale of this show of worship, she ends the show of affection by breaking the neck of the flask of ointment that she has, and she douses and exhausts all of this perfume on the feet of our Lord. And all the while, Jesus never bats an eye. He doesn't even look at this woman. He pays her no attention. Instead, Jesus simply reads the hearts of those around the table, including the Pharisee who invited him. And so Simon, seeing the way this woman worshipped Jesus, thinks to himself. So if you go back to the text, you'll see Simon thought in his head. I don't know the exact wording, but... But we get the idea there, this is not something Simon said out loud. It was a thought Simon had in his head, which is a good indicator that Jesus is probably who he claims to be, right? And so Simon thinks, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were who he claims to be, he would know what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And the idea, of course, is that if Jesus were a prophet, if he were who he claimed to be, he would know the Torah, he would know the Jewish laws, he would never tolerate this kind of behavior from this kind of woman. Instead, he would shame her publicly and perhaps even worse. But rather than addressing Simon's thoughts directly, Jesus goes to the back door of Simon's heart and he does it with a story. So Jesus, with this scandalous woman still weeping at his feet, gives Simon a bit of a word problem. He says, Simon, a money lender has two debtors. One owes him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now for context, a denarii was about a, a day's worth of wages in those uh, days for a blue collar worker, for kind of a common person. And so 50 denarii is a good bit of money. It's about two months worth, but it is repayable. 
right? Some hard work, some sweat equity, you budget a little bit here and there, and you can pay that off. But 500 denarii is about two and a half to three years worth of wages. And that's a lot of money. That would have been very difficult to pay off in those days if you could pay it off at all. And Jesus says that neither one of these men could pay back their debt. So the lender cancels both of the debt. And then he asks Simon, which person will love the lender more? So really straightforward story. Simon interprets it correctly, um, as did probably you or your kids, if they were to be asked this question. And of course, the answer is the one who owed the greater debt. And as far as I can tell, I see two main takeaways from this simple story of Jesus. The first perhaps is not so obvious. The second is more obvious. And it's what led Simon to choose the correct answer. The first takeaway from um, this question and from this story is that both debtors owed a debt they could not pay, right? One owed a lot more, one owed a lot less, but Jesus says neither of them could repay the debt, which means it is not about how much they owed in relation to one another. It is simply about the fact that neither of them could repay the lender. And so the lender graciously forgives both of them. Now, we probably all assume that both debtors would have accepted the lender's pardon, right? The lender says, hey, I'm going to let you off debt-free, no strings attached. We all assume they would say, yes, I will take that deal in a heartbeat. Thank you very much. But there are actually two possible responses to the lender in this situation. The first response would be to accept the lender's pardon, which would leave you free of debt and full of gratitude. The second response would be to actually reject the lender's offer and insist that you pay the debt back yourself which will make you very tired, and if you succeed, will make you very proud. Our sinner chose the first response. Simon chooses the latter. The second thing to notice here is that because neither of the debtors could repay the lender, the following principle as is at play. The greater the debt, the greater the gratitude. Or as Jesus says, the greater the love. Which Jesus implies explains Simon's behavior, and this woman's for that matter. The reason this woman's worship was so provocative is because Christ's grace was so abundant to her. On the other hand, Simon's apathy towards Jesus, his indifference, his non-impressiveness, if you will, is owing to the fact that he was ignorant in regards to his own sin. In fact, I think Simon would deny the fact that he has any sin to begin with because I would say, or I would assume he would say, he pays his debt off daily with one self-righteous act of obedience after another. But Jesus doesn't stop with a simple story. He then begins to expose the actions and the attitudes behind them of both Simon and of this sinner. So first to Simon, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Now imagine at this point in the story, Simon is thinking, do I see her? Everybody sees her, Jesus. That's all everybody can pay attention to. The only person who doesn't seem to see her is you, right? Which is why I had the thought in my head to begin with that you just mind read, which is weird. And so Jesus says, I entered your house, Simon, but you gave me no water for my feet. But she, in contrast, has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them off with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, Simon, but she has anointed them with ointment and perfume, which is very, very expensive to her. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, 500 denarii worth, if you will, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he was forgiven little, a la Simon in uh, the story, he loves little. Now we have to understand that the culture in those days, um, which, was a bit lo- which was a bit unlike ours, excuse me, was an honor-shame culture. And it was one where hospitality was paramount 
because to practice hospitality was an easy and obvious way to honor the guest in your home. Which means that the contrary is also true. If you were to deny your guest hospitality, it would be an easy way to shame them. And so Jesus here is alluding to three traditional ways that a host would honor their guest. The first way is that they would wash their feet. Secondly, they would greet them with a kiss. And third, they would anoint their head with oil. All of this was common knowledge and it was very much expected in a gathering like this. But as Jesus points out, Simon does none of these to Jesus, not the first one. Now, you may be thinking perhaps Simon forgot. I mean, he is uh, hosting Jesus after all. We remember the story of Martha and Mary, if you're familiar with that. Martha was super busy. She probably forgot something in all of the hustle and bustle. But I don't think that's the case with Simon here. And I say that for two reasons. For starters, Simon uh, is a Pharisee, right? This man memorized the Torah. He knows the whole thing. He knows the law backwards and forwards, inside and out. He is a professional perfectionist. He doesn't forget anything especially something that would make him look bad publicly. Image is everything to the Pharisees. The second reason I don't think Simon forgot to honor Jesus was because Simon simply didn't like Jesus, okay? Jesus, uh, Simon, excuse me, was not a fanboy. And this was rooted both in Jesus' endorsement of John the Baptist, who was very outspoken against the Pharisees, and in the fulfillment of John the Baptist's ministry. So John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus. Um, the way I think of John the Baptist and the way I explain him is if you're on like a back road in South Carolina, which we are often, um, you ever see those trucks that say, why load ahead? Well, it's like the little pickup, like the Chevy S10. It's got these little flags coming out like an old school antenna TV. And it says, why load ahead? And then there's like this 60 foot wide mammoth of a two, you know, double wide coming behind it that takes up the entire road. Okay, Jesus is the double wide. John the Baptist is the little wide load ahead thing. That's Jesus, or that, that's John the Baptist. That's his role in the biblical narrative is to say, something is coming behind me that is, is going to uh, displace you from your reality. It's going to take up space. It needs, you need to change in response to this thing that's coming. And John the Baptist is the one that says, make way, right? Prepare yourselves. That was John the Baptist. And so in Luke chapter 7, right after John the Baptist, uh, or Jesus is endorsing the message of John the Baptist. Um, oh boy, hold on. Okay, so, so yeah, they don't like, Simon doesn't like Jesus because he is endorsing John the Baptist, but they didn't like the gospel that Jesus was preaching as well. And that's mainly because it threatened the Pharisees' authority and the chokehold they held over Jewish society of the day, especially to the poor and the marginalized uh, and kind of the unliked, like the sinner in our story. And so I don't think this was a uh, forgetfulness on, the ha on behalf of Simon to snob Jesus of hospitality in his own home. Which means that by failing to honor Jesus, he conveyed shame to Jesus. But it also means that by failing to honor Jesus and show him hospitality, he actually redirected the honor back at himself. This is a passive-aggressive way of suggesting that it is Simon who deserves hospitality, not Jesus. It is Simon who deserves honor in this table, not Jesus. And what I want you to see here is that all of this, all of Simon's actions flow out of two things. They flow out of his self-awareness and they flow out of his Christ-awareness or his understanding of who Jesus is, his belief in who Jesus is. So first, let's look at self-awareness. So to put you in the mind of a first century Pharisee, I want to paraphrase a little bit from Paul in the New Testament, who prior to his conversion was also a Pharisee. He was named Saul. You may be familiar with that. In Philippians chapter 3, um, Saul Paul talks about his life a little bit as a Pharisee and his pedigree as a Pharisee. 
And Paul boasts, he says, I had all of it, right? I had the passion, I had the pedigree, and when it came to the law, he said, I was blameless. I was above reproach. There was not an I that I didn't dot, not a T that I didn't cross. But where Simon has a high view of himself as a Pharisee, his counterpart in the story, the sinner, has a very low view of herself. Or I would just say she has an accurate view of herself. It's not that she's in self-pity, she's just self-aware, right? She's aware of who she is. She's aware of her sins and her faults and her flaws and her shortcomings. And where Simon directed the honor back at himself, our sinful woman directs all of the honor away from herself, and she directs it to the person and work of Jesus. And I want us to see that the reason that this woman could see who Jesus really is was because she was aware of who she really was. She wasn't self-deceived as Simon was. She was acutely aware of all of her sin and all of her shame, which opened her up to then receive all of Christ's mercy and all of His grace. In fact, I think if um, this woman could have read Luke's gospel, I think she would have been okay with Luke not even using her name and just identifying her as a sinner and a woman of the city. And the word in the Greek here for sinner doesn't just mean that she had sin or she did sin. It's more grievous than that. It's more judgmental. It's, it's more identifying. The word here for sinner is a noun, not an adjective. It means that sin wasn't just something she does. It is who she is. As one commentator put it, she is a professional sinner. And most scholars, and you may know this, believe that this woman was a prostitute, which means she literally made money by defiling the law. That was how she made her living. And this woman knows it. She's not proud of it, not by any means, but she knows that and she takes ownership of it, which is actually, I believe, the first step in repentance. Right? To repent means we have to own our own shortcomings before the Lord. It was John Calvin who first said that without knowledge of self, there can be no knowledge of God. He goes on to say that our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he says the two are so closely connected, it's hard to tell which one precedes the other. So the more we know ourselves, he says, the more we know God. And the more we know God, the more we know ourselves. So a little word of application here. If we view ourselves as Simon did, as basically good, as self-sufficient, and as able to measure up to the subjective scale we construct in our heads, then we will find Jesus useless at best and offensive at worst. The reason Simon shows no interest in the Savior is because he doesn't identify as a sinner to begin with, which means that Jesus and his Gospels are no help at all. In fact, uh, they only serve to threaten the false sense of autonomy and control that Simon has worked so hard to attain. And that is something Simon can't let go of. He'd rather drive nails through Jesus' hands and feet than bow the knee and call Christ king. Self-deception may seem benign, but in the end it leads to death. On the other hand, if we see ourselves as the sinner does, as someone who can't climb out of the hole that we have dug ourselves and jumped into, then at the least we will find Jesus compelling, and at best we will find Him to be the Son of God that He actually is. It's only when we accurately see ourselves that we can accurately see who Jesus is and what He can be and wants to be for us. Which brings us to our last prerequisite for worship, and that is the currency of the kingdom. All right, so Jesus does two things in this text that were radical at that time um, and made him very unpopular with Pharisees like Simon. The first is that Jesus claimed that it was faith that saves, not works. Jesus says it's not your law keeping, 
It is not your lineage that is impressive to God. It is your faith, which we see earlier in chapter 7. Actually, chapter 7 in Luke's gospel kicks off with the story of the Roman centurion who the Jews hated, right? He was a Gentile to them. And Jesus says, uh, Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith. The second thing that made Jesus so radical and so offensive to the Pharisees is that Jesus was claiming to be God, and he wasn't shy about it. He said things that only God can say, and he did things that only God can do. He does it here in verse 48 as he tells the sinner, your sins are forgiven. And you may have noticed the religious elites pick up on this. They say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Which is kind of their way of asking, who does he think he is? God? And notice, Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't soften the blow. He doesn't take it back. He just lets it hang there because that is exactly what Jesus is saying. And he's making no apologies for it. In fact, Jesus seems surprised when everybody else fails to see this. So when our sinful woman is face down at Jesus' feet in a puddle of tears in Chanel number 5, Jesus doesn't interrupt her. He doesn't say, hey, that's a bit much. This is getting kind of awkward. I feel uncomfortable. Right? Not here, not now. Can we do this later somewhere else? No, Jesus actually praises this woman for, his, for her worship. He draws attention to her. And where everybody else was putting her down, Jesus is lifting her up. He is heightening her as the example par excellence in a room filled with people that all thought they were better than her. He says she is the one to emulate here. She is the one to mimic. And that's because she is the only one who sees that right before her is God in the flesh paving a new way back to the Father, one that is based on faith and not on works. Jesus was taking this heavy, soul-crushing yoke of the law and He was removing it from the shoulders of sinners like this woman and He was instead choosing to shoulder the load Himself. And so because this woman was the only one to rightly see her own depravity, she was the only one to rightly see Christ's glory, which meant that she was the only one who by faith could receive Christ's mercy. And that is what faith is. Jesus says it's the key to the kingdom. We come to God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, or we don't come at all. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on this text says that having our sins forgiven both freely and fully is the mainspring and lifeblood of love and devotion to Christ. He goes on to say the true explanation of the deep love with which this woman displayed were all traceable to one cause, that though sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. He goes on to point out that her love was the effect of her forgiveness, not the cause, right? Which means she wasn't doing this and then Jesus forgave her. Jesus forgave her and therefore she loved him. He goes on to say it was, um, it was the consequence of her forgiveness, not the condition, the result of her forgiveness, not the reason, and the fruit of her forgiveness, not the root. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. This is what theologians call a passive righteousness, and it is the only kind of righteousness that counts before God. But to receive His righteousness, it requires two things from us. It's to see ourselves as sinners, and to see Christ as ready and willing to be our Savior. And when that happens by faith, Christ's righteousness becomes our own. And in response, all we have left to say like this woman is thank you, thank you, thank you and worship Him at His feet. Let's pray. Father, uh, there, there are not a lot of practical applications per se to this message, but to sit at Your feet and worship You. 
Lord, perhaps it's been a long time. I know for me at times I go lengths of time without thinking of your mercy and your grace and the state that you found me in and the state that I would still be in were it not for your love for me. Lord, I pray that we would this morning take a look at who we are. God, when we sit in a room by ourselves without our titles, without our egos, without our trinkets and toys, Lord, who we are before you, and that is that we have nothing to bring to the table except the sin that we have uh, borne, Lord, that we have, we have made of ourselves, that we are by nature objects of wrath. But thanks be to God that you love us in spite of that and that Jesus Christ died for sinners. We love you, Lord. We ask that your uh, name will be glorified this morning in your people uh, and that faith will be brought about uh, in the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.